So many of us don't know how work works. Self-awareness is at an all-time low. My name is Chester Elton, and I'm with my dear friend and co-author, Adrian Gostick. Well, thanks, Chess. Yeah, today we're going to talk about important ideas, about ideas like self-awareness, reading the room, how we can become more aware, whether we suffer from anxiety or we're, we're watching over somebody who does. We're going to make sure that you can be better at this crazy thing called work. As always, we hope the time you spend with us will help reduce the stigma of anxiety at work and in your personal life. And with us is our new friend, Dr. Michelle P. King, author of How Work Works, A Subtle Science of Getting Ahead Without Losing Yourself. Michelle is a recognized expert on gender, gender equity and organizational culture, and in her new book, guides readers through the modern workplace from recognizing subtle body language cues to learning how to communicate across cultural and generational divides. Welcome to the show, Michelle. We're delighted to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me today. Well, Michelle, you talk in your book about self-awareness, and I think that's something most of us may be a little lacking in. So how do we get a better grasp on how we're coming across to others and what we might do about that? I think the starting point for recognizing the importance of self-awareness and how to sort of do it better, if you like, is sort of owning the fact that most of us aren't self-aware. So there's a Harvard Business Review study that shows about 95% of people think they're self-aware when actually only about 15% of people are. And, you know, if we think about what is self-awareness, it's really the gap between how you see yourself in terms of your thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, and how other people experience that, right? So it's understanding the gap so you can take steps to close it. And I think... The challenge is recognizing not only sort of how you see yourself, how someone else is, is perceiving that behavior, but then is to understand, you know, what do you need to do to integrate both of those points of view? So I think one of the things that's important for people to recognize is just the impact and the cost of not managing your self-awareness. So if you're a, a sort of typical, what we call underestimator, so somebody who consistently underestimates the positive impact of your behavior, you can become more self-aware by sort of regularly sort of seeking out feedback and leaning into your strengths. But if you're an overestimator, if you're somebody who consistently overestimates the positive impact, and we all know this person, I know your listeners will be thinking of somebody now, um, you know, it is likely if you have one of those people on your team, it will reduce your team's performance by 50%. That's an amazing statistic. So what that tells us is, you know, overestimators are those people who are not open to feedback, who don't regulate their behavior, and it makes it really hard for your team to work together, even if you just have one of them. So how do you actually close the gap? I think um, there's really two things we can do. So one is self-reflection. So we know that if you take 15 minutes a day, one five, over a period of 10 days, and you ask yourself, you know, what could I do differently today? What worked, what didn't? And you really try and explore what questions rather than why questions. So why did that happen today? Why did things go wrong? Why does my boss hate me? You know, really stick to sort of what questions. So what worked, what didn't, what could I do differently? Just 15 minutes a day. You can walk your dog, you can do it in the shower, it doesn't matter. 
you will increase your self-awareness by 23% over 10 days. That's quite an amazing statistic. And some people might say, well, Michelle, it's only 23%. But I think if you make that a regular practice, think about the compounded impact over like 30 days, right? And this is really important for leaders because typically, you know, the higher up an organization you go, the less self-aware people are. In fact, in academia, we call it the CEO disease because leaders tend to be the least self-aware people. And one of the reasons for that is they don't have access to a wide range of feedback from diverse sources, right? They typically rely on people closest to them who also filter things through a biased perception. So for leaders, that self-reflective practice is really important. But that's just one part of the story because the other way you can develop self-awareness is by making you know feedback a regular part of your process. So I, I always say you know leaders tend to make feedback weird because they formalize it, right? There's like some formal sit down and everybody's stressed and sweating and somebody cries and then nobody <laughs> wants to give feedback again. So I'm like, let's not do that. Let's make it informal as possible. And, you know, at the end of a presentation, at the end of a team meeting, at the end of a piece of work, you just turn to the person, you know, is next to you or as they're leaving and you just gather that feedback again by asking what questions, right? So what worked, what didn't, what what could we do differently? And I, I do about 500 speaking engagements a year. And at, after every speaking engagement, I always ask those three questions informally as much as possible. And I find that's how I've managed to become a better speaker because I consistently try and understand how different audiences respond to content, literally what works, what doesn't, what could I do differently? And then I integrate that into how I'm speaking. So I think this is something everybody can do. And it's really important, not only for your career success, because you're much more likely to be effective, high performing, engaged, but it also just makes you a better teammate. You know, it's so interesting you talk about, you know, people that overestimate are less self-aware and less open to feedback. I, I really appreciate your two steps there. You know, my father had a great expression about people that are, you know, inflated their, their value. He'd say, um, see that guy over there? If you could buy him for what he's worth and then sell him for what he thinks he's worth, you could make a killing, <laughs> you know, that <laughs> overestimation. Um, really appreciate that. So let's bring anxiety back into the conversation or into the conversation. Let's say someone's feeling overly stressed or, or anxious at work and, and they're maybe losing themselves, as, as, you, as you say in your book title. How can we take back control of our lives? So I would bring this back to, um, at least for the content as it relates to my book, I know you're both experts on this and you've written your book, um, but for me, it's really about the, managing those connections at work, right? So I recently did a survey, I'm, a, I'm the eternal researcher, like 20 years into this, and I just completed a survey of 2018 to 24 year olds. And I asked them, one of the questions was, you know, what is the primary source of stress for you at work? Something that sort of blew my mind was 75% of them said it was their line manager. So what yeah. we have to recognize is sort of the disproportionate role that relationships play in anxiety at work. And the reason I'm pushing this is, you know, in the book, I refer to the fact that 90% of our anxiety at work is caused by 5% of the people in our informal network. 
and being able to identify really early on, you know, who is somebody who is worth investing time, energy, effort in terms of getting to know because your time at work is limited. You are a person, you only have so many hours in a day, you have to be really mindful about where you spend your time and who you connect with. And I talk about this idea of mutually beneficial relationships and really what we find is those 5% of people tend to be people where the relationship is ambiguous. So where you're not sure if they have your best interests at heart, right? Because we're pretty good. Like if I if I got people to write down who they connect with at work, you're pretty good at identifying, you know, do they have my best interests or don't they? It's the ones where we're not sure, where every interaction, we're going to go away and, you know, really mull over it, analyze it, try and understand why things aren't working, what's going on. And the one thing that sort of nobody's touched on when we talk about this is the fact that, you know, you can have a mutually beneficial relationship that becomes ambiguous. And so constantly yeah. monitoring your informal network to work out, is this a mutually beneficial relationship? Because those are the ones you want to invest in. I'm not saying you get rid of your 5%, but what I am saying is you want to be mindful about where you're spending your time and your mental and emotional energy connecting. And so there's a lot more on that that I can say about informal networks, but that's just one aspect of managing your informal network. No, that's excellent. It's a good point that we look for, I think, consistency over, over anything even. Even if somebody is tough, that they're consistently tough, then we know what to expect versus this ambiguity you bring up, which is so important. Um, Michelle, you're, you're an expert on women and the challenges they face in the workplace. So what, what advice would you give to the listeners who are women who are, who are wondering how can they thrive at work? Well, what, what can they learn from your research? Yeah, so I'm firmly in the camp of not fixing or changing women to fit into workplaces, but very much about how do we create workplaces where, you know, women can advance just as they are. So I, I tend not to put sort of an emphasis on what women need to do to navigate workplaces. I mean, I think the number one sort of barrier to women's advancement at work tends to be the denial of inequality in workplaces. And how that shows up for women in particular is internalizing inequality they experience. So, you know, I'll give you a quick example. The very first day I became a manager, my boss was in the kitchen. It was lunchtime. The lunchroom was pretty packed. He was standing on the opposite side of the room. And he yells, hey, Michelle, you're a woman. Why don't you wash the dishes? Oh, jeez. Right? So that's day one. That's day one of my experience. So you can imagine what the lived experience was like. And what was incredible about that is, you know, it, there's nothing I can do. I have the performance ratings. I am a good teammate. I get along with everybody. I work really hard. Like, I literally do everything. I'm qualified. I can't make my boss value me, right? And so 46% of employees' experiences of inclusion are directly attributable to their line leader. That's a catalyst survey. And so I think what we have to recognize is the disproportionate role that leaders play in shaping employees' experiences at work. And if you've got a leader who's leading in a way that devalues difference, you know, that's going to have a really co consequential impact. So you know, writing the first book, I really wanted to show women how it's not you, it's your workplace, and how, you know, it's really important to see inequality for what it is, because it's with that awareness and understanding, we can start to realize it isn't us, and stop fixing or changing ourselves to fit into workplaces that are never really going to value us for who we are. 
and instead shift the emphasis on how do we change organizations and importantly why like what's the personal case for change why do men need to change the way in which they engage with women and importantly how's that going to benefit them because you know i do think a lot of dei initiatives have failed men i did a study for a whole year on men's experiences of inequality at work and i found that you know the number one barrier men believe to their advancement at work are dei initiatives focused on women so you know we've got this win lose thing around dei that's super unhelpful right and we're seeing it at the moment with backlash fatigue all of that and so I think what we have to recognize is everything we want as individuals, our ability to advance, our ability to find fulfillment, our ability to find meaning, our ability to connect, our ability to collaborate, innovate, problem solve is on the other side of knowing how do we work effectively with our teammates. 83% of us have to collaborate with others in order to achieve outcomes. That is only set to increase. You know, social and emotional skills across every single job category are set to increase over the next three to five years, right? And if you think of career success, 75% of career success depends on social skills like knowing how to work with others. So for me, it's really recognizing this is a skill set we all need. And that's really why I wrote the second book. I wanted to show people, let's park DEI, let's park inequality for a minute. I'm going to show you how the world of work has changed and why you need a new way of working because who you work with is way more important than who you work for. And knowing how to, you know, work with your teammates is a critical skill for everybody, regardless of gender. You know, you bring up a good point where you say relationships are really important, right? And how you interact with people is really important. So how has hybrid work impacted that? And, uh, you know, how has that interaction impacted and impacts your overall corporate culture and values when you're hybrid or you're completely remote? How does that change things? So I think we have to recognize that the world of work has changed, right? So the 1950s industrial era with the hierarchical command and control structure where to get ahead you had to be dominant, assertive, aggressive, competitive and exclusionary and in the office and be there all the time. You know, that that model is gone because our context has changed. So today, to get ahead, you have to be democratic, caring, empathetic, collaborative, curious. You know, you have to be much more transformational in the way that you show up. And I think the challenge is, in a hybrid setting, given that, you know, collaboration is king in today's world, because in the 1950s, you could arguably go to work, just complete a set of tasks on repeat and go home. There are very few jobs today where people don't have to interact with anyone to do their job, very few. And so the challenge is recognizing that if collaboration is king, our new environment that is predicted to stay, which is hybrid, um, it's a lot harder to collaborate in a hybrid setting. So people hate it when I say that, but it's just factually correct. So it's much, much harder to feel like you belong. It's much, much harder to share ideas, share information, collaborate. And I just want listeners to think about this for a minute. I mean, if you wanted to you know, establish a relationship with someone you don't know, Doing that on Zoom, it is weird, right? It's hard because you suddenly can't read their nonverbal cues, can't tell sort of what's happening outside of just a little square that you see. You don't know if they're engaging in side chat. You don't know sort of what's happening outside of just the Zoom. And so I think what we have to recognize is that, 
you know, hybrid working has made connecting way harder. And companies have not stepped up to equip managers to lead in that setting, right? So we've got a lot of leaders leading in the 1950s way because it worked for them up until this point, right? And now when the pandemic set in and, you know, we had hybrid working, a lot of leaders are like, why can't we just go back to the way things were, right? It was so much easier then because that's what I know. Our comfort is with what we know. But the reality is the world of work has changed. And so leaders aren't leading in a way that enables employees to manage this new world. But I think we also as individuals don't understand that we are our workplaces. So if you're in a hybrid environment and you don't feel connected, what are you doing to manage that? So in the book, for example, I share really intentional strategies that you can put into play to manage your informal network, right? There's three core things every single person can start doing today to feel more connected to manage your informal network. So that's one example, right? The book has four different areas that people can look at to have greater meaning and connection, regardless of what environment you work in. So sounds like lots of practical advice, lots of practical tips. How can people, other than picking up uh, the new book, Michelle, how can people learn more about your work? Yeah, sure. Um, I've got a website, michellepking.com, and forever the advocate, I have created a e-journal with 52 exercises, one for every week of the year that people can download and use. Um, to really try and put this into action. So I encourage people to go onto the website. I've also got conversation cards, quizzes, you name it, all the contents there. It's free and it's just a way to get people to think differently about about work. And I just want to say, um, if anyone is listening, my motivation to, for doing all of that is because, you know, next to sleep, work is where you spend the most number of hours <laughs> over your lifetime. And this quiet quitting phenomenon, this idea that you're going to find meaning beyond your workplace, you know, after 5 p.m., while that's a nice idea, in reality, you know, work plays a disproportionate role in your life satisfaction. So getting to the end of your career and asking yourself, you know, what is it all for? That's probably one of the saddest moments. So I coach a lot of leaders who are approaching that end point, and it is absolutely devastating to see that they thought it was all about the job title and the salary, when in effect, all the data tells us it's about the connections and the contribution you leave behind rather than the title you arrive at. So I just encourage anybody who's thinking, you know, does this really matter? Your job satisfaction is in part your life satisfaction. So yes, it does. Well, you're absolutely right. It's about relationships. It's about, um, again, as you mentioned, self-awareness. As I notice our time is getting a little short, I, I really liked the opening story used in the book about reading the air. So quickly, if you don't mind, relate that story and help us understand how that maybe connects to a bigger life lesson for all of us. So reading the air is really a Japanese term um, for reading the unwritten rules, reading between the lines, reading the room. All around the world, people have different phrases. And the story you reference is where a Japanese businessman was kind of running over time in a meeting. And the client said, yo, then, you know, that's a nice watch you've got as a way to sort of say, please look at the time, right? Hurry the meeting up. 
And the Japanese businessman failed to pick up what the client was saying. Now, it's amazing when I share that, particularly in a North American context, people will say, well, why don't you just tell him, wrap it up, it's, you know, end of meeting. <laughs> yeah. And the great thing about reading the air is saying, you know, we have to care for one another. It's become uncool to care about the people you work with. There's this idea of I'm going to go in and do the bare minimum and not care or be myself regardless. And that's sort of how we got into this mess. So managing the impact your behavior has starts with recognizing we are our workplaces, caring for others and giving to others is in effect how we give to ourselves because we will feel more connected, we will feel like we belong. And I really want to encourage people to recognize that managing the impact your behavior has is what leads to your ability to collaborate, innovate, problem solve and be more effective at work. So that's the essence of the idea. You know, how do we advance while also um, advancing our teammates? Well, and I loved about the story, too, was that the Japanese businessman didn't just miss the cue. He talked for 10 or 15 minutes about his watch. <laughs> you know, it was like, how unself-aware can you be? Yeah. yeah well, yeah. it's amazing, though. He tweeted that story and it went viral because, you know, reading the air is such a common practice in, in Japan. Yeah, yeah. Hey, uh, really quick, what, what's one thing that you do to keep yourself, you know, mentally sharp and self-aware and, and uh, to pass along to our listeners? You know, we're always interested in personal care tactics. So something I consistently do is I really manage my informal network. I'm an introvert, um, so I like to spend a lot of time on my own. And I will take a really active approach to managing that. So I always, you know, I think we get networking wrong. We always think about what can I get from people? So who do I know who can give me something, a job, access to something? When in reality, effective networkers think about how they can pay it forward. So to give you a quick example, um, you know, this is a daily practice of mine. I recently had a book launch in New York and we had a lunch with, you know, the head of HarperCollins business and, you know, all these other colleagues. And I thought, you know, this is a great opportunity for anybody who wants to write a book. Who needs to be here? Who's in my informal network? Who can I invite and bring along to this? And um, that that's a practice. That's something that I do. So I invited a, a bunch of people who want to write a book and that was their opportunity to access people in the network. And I don't want anything in return for that. It's my way of building connections. And I think that's something we get wrong. That's something we need to think about when we think about, you know, how do we build networks? Not what you can take. It's what you can give. Excellent. Excellent. Adrian? You know, last question then, Michelle, you, you know, you've been studying this, writing this book over the last couple of years. What's maybe a one big takeaway you'd like our least listeners to leave with today that maybe was an aha for you during this process? So um, the biggest takeaway for me outside of like all the tips on how to develop and advance and build network, all of that was that nine out of 10, nine out of 10 people would give up a significant portion of lifetime earnings for greater meaning and fulfillment at work. In fact, they'd give up as much as they spend on housing. And when I looked at what gives people meaning and fulfillment at work, it's really about the extent to which they feel connected to their teammates. 
And when you look at what builds connection, it's about, again, what are you giving, right? This idea of reciprocity. So are you giving people access to information, advice and support or networks? How are you paying it forward? And the incredible thing about this is when you pay it forward to somebody, like my lunch example, they feel compelled because of the law of reciprocity to pay it back to you, even if that's not your intent, right? They will feel compelled to do that. And anyone observing you doing that in terms of helping out a colleague is also going to want to pay it forward to you. So there's this triple whammy where you feel good for doing it. You're getting something back because people can't help themselves. And anyone watching also feels the need to do it. I found that so amazing because I think we always think of this as soft or, you know, mushy or, but actually there's hard data to show this is actually what you're going to feel your contribution is. It's not what you do, it's how you do it. And managing the how is what gives you meaning at work. Excellent. Excellent. This has been a great conversation. Thanks so much for your time. We know you can be in a lot of places. Good luck with the book. We hope you sell a million. Our guest has been uh, a practical, gives us lots of, lots of statistics, lots of practical things. So, um, Dr. King, uh, Michelle, thank you so much for being on our podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Michelle. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Adrian, lots to take in about self-awareness and how work works. I'm curious, what were some of the big takeaways you well, realized? I, first off, I don't think it's a huge surprise to any of us that 95% of us think we're self-aware and about, you know, 15% of us or so are actually self-aware. So this is one of my thoughts as, as Michelle was saying this, but I think it's, it's brilliant and it's great work. How many of us don't really want to know what others think of us, <laughs> especially if you are <laughs> feeling a little anxious, a little stressed? Um, it's much easier to just go through life kind of oblivious, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, you know, she reinforced what we hear all the time and that, that, you know, your line manager, your immediate supervisor has a huge impact on what you think of work. And I, I really appreciated the fact that she said, well, work on that relationship. Yeah. You know, that's really an important relationship. Instead of whining and complaining about your boss, figure out ways to connect and, yeah. and make that connection. I thought it was great. And also for the boss, too, I thought this was really interesting, is the boss needs to be more open, honest. And we, we hear this a lot. We preach this when we go out and speak. Uh, you and I, just uh, two days ago, we were in one of the world's largest banks, and we were giving a presentation. And you remember that the one woman who stood up, and we asked about kind of a, a good experience from, from your past work with the boss, and she talked about Jack Welch. A G Capital. And she said uh, she was in a meeting once as a junior analyst. And Jack asked, he said what he wants to do. And he asked the group, he says, give me some feedback. And everybody said, great idea, boss. Great idea, boss. And what, Jack stood up and said, great. You're all fired. I don't need any of you. <laughs> and then he kind of he gave it a little pause. Then he said, okay. He says, I'm kind of kidding. He says, but if you come into a meeting again and give me no feedback, he says, this will be your last day at GE. So, you know, he says, I don't need people who don't give me feedback. And that's what we need to, you know, bring out in our teams is we need that, that interaction and that honesty. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it comes back to, you know, what do your relationships look like? And yeah. you spend more time at work, you know, her line, other than sleep, we spend more time at work than we do anywhere else. I, I can make the argument, I've got lots of friends who spend way more time at work than they do sleeping. <laughs> you know, it, it could be number one for them. And, and so, you know, work on that network, work on those relationships. I, I really appreciated her take on uh, reflection. 
self-reflection, ask the why questions. You know, uh, why did this happen? How can I uh, do this better? And she said, look, just 15 minutes a day can really increase your productivity over as few days as, as 10 days. That reflection becomes really important, doesn't it? It does. And and what I also like, too, is this idea of ambiguity, which we haven't touched on as much, but this is really important, especially, you know, for anybody who, who feels anxious at work. Um, if we're creating an ambiguous situation where I don't know how my boss is going to react, you think of the best bosses that you've ever had. They're consistent. Um, you know, however they are, they're, you know, we're not telling people to change. We're just telling you, be consistent. So it's not like, oh, my gosh, oh, Chester today, don't go near him. He's in one of his moods. You know, that's <laughs> never helpful, is it? No, no, never is. Uh, you know, I, 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 I really love the fact that she offers so many free things on her website. This, this e-journal, you know, a, a tip a week for 52 weeks. Uh, those little tools that, you know, she offers. And I think that's part of the discipline. Yeah. Am I reflecting every day? Do I have a, 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 an accountability partner, whether it's an e-journal or a friend? or And, and in her network, what can I give as opposed to what can I, I get that I thought was really a healthy perspective on, you know, keeping your network fresh and engaged. Yeah, we could go on and on. Lots of great tips, uh, lots of great information. So, uh, yeah, thanks to, to Michelle King coming on today and enlightening us. We want to thank our producer, Brent Klein, who helps uh, put all this together, to Christy Lawrence, who helps us find amazing guests like Michelle, and all of you who have listened in. If you like the podcast, please download it, share it, and we'd love you to visit thecultureworks.com for some free resources including a new journal coming out in just a few weeks. Yes, the gratitude habit, right, Chess? Absolutely. Buy one for yourself and one for a friend. You know, why buy just one? And, of course, we love, to speaking, uh, we love speaking to audiences all around the world, whether it's virtual or in person on topics like culture, teamwork, resilience, anxiety at the work, in the workplace, and so on. So give us a call. We'd love to talk to you about your event. Well, Adrian, another great podcast. As always, I will give you the last word. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us. Thanks, Jess, for uh, your insights as well. And until next time, we wish you the best of mental health. <laughs>